Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Eric Alper. Eric is a self-described lifelong musicaholic who for almost three decades has been the go-to guy for the latest news and commentary concerning the Canadian music industry. A six-time nominee for Canadian Music Week's Publicist of the Year and a 16-time Juno Award winner overseeing PR campaigns, Eric has worked with some of the biggest artists of our time. And dear listener, rest assured we will get good stories from him about many of them in this episode. Eric continues to publish his ad-free blog, hosts his own show on Sirius XM Radio, and has proven he can keep up with the times by becoming a leading pop culture voice on social media, particularly via Twitter. Welcome, Eric, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am in my home, in my uh, home office, and I am uh, I'm great. I'm always great. Um, you know, um, and I don't want to date this podcast, but we just found out that Loretta Lynn had passed away. So it's been a little bit of a bonkers morning doing media. Um, so I'm kind of sad that we lost one of, you know, not just country music's greatest badasses, but, um, you know, music's, you know, best, one of the best loved songwriters when it comes mm-hmm. to feminist songs and pro women songs um so yeah but other than that i'm great how are you i'm good i'm doing fabulous i i have to say i'm in awe i'm going to start with your flowing locks this is an audio vehicle the podcast but you have yeah, an too amazing bad. too amazing bad amazing head of hair I, I i got nothing and i think you are what kim mitchell wishes could have uh, stayed true Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I just got my hair cut um, uh, for um, the first time in about nine years. Um, I, I think since since I started watching much music back in 1984 and realized how how good hair was or how good hair could be, um, I think I had maybe a, a half a dozen haircuts in, since then. So, yeah, thank you. Well, for that. fabulous. But what, but what you don't have in your head, you have on your face. You're, you're, so you're... that's okay. You're a, you're a good man, Eric. You're making me feel good. Now, for today, I am officially renaming this podcast Richmond Hill Legends. I, of course, am a Richmond Hill legend. I've had. Oh, are you really? This, are you I, here? I, I'm Why are Brita. we doing this in person then? We we should be. I don't have the technology yeah. yet, but we absolutely should be. Yeah. Elvis Stoiko was on this podcast. He is such a legend that he actually has an arena named after him. Yeah, right down the street from where I live. (laughs) You too, Eric. You are obviously a Richmond Hill legend. What are your connections to the city of Richmond Hill? Newsflash, we're now a city, no longer just a town. Oh, that's right. Um, My parents moved here from the uh, Jane and Keel, Jane and Finch area, when I was 13, I went to camp for the summer and they didn't tell us that they were moving and they moved um, to Bathurst and Center Street in in Thornhill and then um, right across the street um, a week after we moved with the grand opening of the Promenade Mall. Wow. And our, our neighbors in our development were cows and wow. horses because it was farmland like we were the last development to be built and i had a cottage my my parents had a cottage in barry ontario um we used to drive up straight up bather street and it would take us 25 minutes to get there now <laughs> it would take us and, and now i'm a little bit north of that in richmond hill um it would take me almost two hours to get there by now um but i love richmond hill um it has everything that i want i was never really a downtown toronto person although 
I spent a lot of my years and a lot of night down there. There were, seems to be almost 10 years where I was out every single night um, talking to bands, working with bands, talking to booking agents, just hustling um, in the industry. I never, I, I, I always loved to leave Toronto behind and go up north. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, that's where I will always be. Well, certainly you're uh, bringing back memories for me. You'll recognize this as well, that Promenade, when it opened, was it was big news. That was huge. the mall. Huge. Yeah. And now, of course, if you were to mention either to your daughter or me to mine that they should think about shopping at Promenade, they'd, they'd think you'd uh, have to go to some kind of asylum because that's the most ridiculous uh, suggestion. The, the, the idea of shopping in person is almost foreign to them. To begin yep. with, um, I worked at Music World at the Promenade for about three years, and and such fun people working there, you know, talking music at nights to these people who, you know, walked in and wanted the new um, Extreme album or the new Vanilla Ice or MC <laughs> Hammer record, and then kind of you know slid them over the My Bloody Valentine record in there and stuff. Um, but yeah, that that those were those were great times. I have nothing. Nothing bad to say about living in Richmond Hill, for sure. Absolutely. Well, we, we don't want to lose our whole Toronto Legends audience. So on that note, I'm going <laughs> to, with your permission, go all the way back, get the Eric Alper story. Where were you born? And tell us about your upbringing. Uh, I was born in Toronto. Uh, my upbringing was um, was great. I, I had no problems. I'm short. I I wore glasses. I have I wear hearing aids. Um, I I had to shave when I was twelve, and despite all of that, I had a pretty good, pretty good childhood and pretty good everything. Um, my family, um, my my parents worked for the Department of Transport in Toronto. My grandfather started a bar in Toronto called Grossman's Tavern, so I was kind of surrounded by music, actually, kind of being in the music scene without even realizing that I was in the music scene. When I was eight years old, I saw the movie American Hot Wax that told the stories. Of, it was a fiction, nonfiction. It was like kind of like a docudrama of uh, uh, Cleveland DJ Alan Freed, who coined the term rock and roll, who kind of brought the first rock and roll concert to Cleveland. Um, and up uh, and and watching it by myself because my parents went to go see another film. Because when we were up at the cottage, that's just what you could do um, in those times. Um, up there on the screen with the real life Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry performing at the concert. And it absolutely blew me away, changed my life forever. It was like, that was my Star Wars. That was my Harry Potter. That was, I, I knew I wanted to be a part of that world, but I had no idea how to do it. And I started getting a subscription to Billboard magazine um, when I was 12 or 13 and, and read it from cover to cover. Um because I loved reading about the stories about the music industry. I loved finding out what a manager does, why the hits were working, why some things weren't. Um, what does a booking agent do? What's, you know, what does a catalog number mean? All of that stuff interested me to no end. I uh, went to York University, uh, started a record label the day after graduating, and that turned quickly into a PR company where um, where I've kind of worked ever since. So that was back in 1995 and, and have loved every moment of it. Well, Eric, before we get to your PR career, and you've alluded to it a little, tell us how music got into your blood via your grandfather, Al. Um, you know, music to me was never really about music. Um, music is, is all about the experiences that people have. It's about the community. It's about 
um, what's going on with the economy, what's going on sociology-wise, what's going on with race, what's going on with sex and creed and everything else that's going on. We're really kind of, um, you know, the artist is really just the funnel for all of that, along, of course, with the talent. Growing up in Grossman's Tavern, I realized that there were so many different types of people that went to the bar. There were the the students from U of T. There were the doctors and the nurses coming in from the hospital. There were the down and out people that just really didn't have a, a place to go in Kensington Market. When I found out later on that my grandfather used to house all the draft dodgers that were coming from America during the Vietnam War, he used to give them free room and board and food. Um, that completely made me realize that music was never was just really all about a place where people can gather and share the good and the bad times together so that kind of stuck with me and and um that's why i think it was in my blood my parents never really got involved so much with the bar scene or the music scene my dad played the bongos really well my mother of course <laughs> had that relationship with my grandfather um but it seemed like every aunt and every cousin and every nephew has worked at Grossman Tavern at one time or another. Um, so it was definitely a family business, but the people that took it over after my grandfather's old have, have continued to make it a place to, to, to go to, no matter who you are. Their doors were always open. And to keep a venue going since, you know, the 1940s is just as, a, a, astounding to begin with, especially during COVID. It is incredible. It's iconic. Grossman's Tavern, as you know, it was Toronto's first licensed blues bar. Opened 1943 on Spadina. It's the longest running live music venue in the city. I did want to ask you, what is the status and ownership of Grossman's today? Um, it's owned by the Louis family. Uh, they bought it in the early 1970s um, and they've continued to carry it on. In fact, this week they just launched the the anniversary of the uh, uh, Louis Grossman's Tavern um, kind of emerging blues artist scholarship. Uh, it was put on hold because of COVID. Um, but they love the blues. They love music. They love their community. They love Kensington Market. And they love Toronto. And I'm so happy that that they they continued it. I've always said that, you know, if they ever decided to sell it, I need to be the first phone call because I will yeah. try to figure something out. I will sell my vinyl and my baseball card collection in order to <laughs> at least put the down payment on something like that. If anybody's looking be... for a rookie George Brett baseball card, call me when that happens. <laughs> well, I certainly hope you never have to part with those collections. But Eric, let's talk about your career. 1998, you started working for the man uh, and subsequently you opened up your own shop. But why don't we go back to the beginning How'd you get started with what became E1 Music Canada? Yeah, there's, um, when I was at York University, I went to York because they had um, seven newspapers and two radio stations on campus. And I knew that no matter what I took in the classrooms, it was what I was going to be doing outside of the classrooms that was going to um, help me out. Just kind of make my mistakes, figure out what I wanted to do. Um, uh, when I... When I started the, the, the record label and PR company with my partner at the time, I got a job a couple of years later working for a, a small label called Shoreline Records. And they had the Nylons and Patricia Conroy and the first EP from Nickelback. So I worked those three artists. And then we changed distributors from Select to a company called Koch. 
and Koch at the time were the with North America's largest independent distributor, meaning that they weren't working with Sony or Warner Universal at the time. Um, and I didn't really care about distributors. I knew about what they did, but they were completely unsexy. They were moving boxes of CDs or vinyl or cassettes from the warehouse to the record stores, and that was it. And the record labels would be doing the really cool stuff. They'd be taking the band around, they'd be doing the marketing, the PR, the sales. The president of Koch Canada had a really great idea, and that was because all of our because all their labels were American based. Um, they didn't really care so much about Canada. We were like four percent of the world market to them, so they were going to spend four percent of their day on this country. So he hired me to work all of these artists, and he said, "You know, would you?" like to work 900 artists instead of working the three that you are right now. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, you know, what do you want for pay? And I said, just give me one copy of everything that you're putting out because I'm going to spend it on your stuff anyway. At the time, they had Smithsonian Folkways records. They had Beggar's Banquet. They had um, all these amazing record labels that I loved that I was buying their stuff anyway. So, you know, gracefully, he gave me he gave me a pay. Um and uh, started working with all of these amazing bands that so I could work Guar in the morning and the Wiggles in the afternoon and Ray Charles <laughs> at night. And working for a distributor, I got to work all of like hundreds and hundreds of labels and, and artists every single year. Um, so whenever they came to Canada, I got to take them around, did the media with them, made sure that they showed up for interviews and so forth and got to spend a lot of time with these artists so that when um, they came to Canada, they knew that they were going to be taken care of. And it kind of changed. I didn't change the industry, but that idea of distributors having publicists um, all kind of in this country started really with Koch doing that. Later on, Koch got bought out by Entertainment One and we went from, you know, million dollar company to like quite frankly like a billion dollar company because entertainment one uh had a lot of film stuff they had harry potter uh among others and uh just kind of exploded so we were working a lot with the film and the television crews um and uh, the film departments to try to get the music in there um and then after about 17 years i jumped started my own company um the writing was on the wall it was you know hmv had just closed and the record man had just closed uh and i figured that if there was any time for me to kind of see what else the world could offer it would be it would be back then so for the last five six years i've been on my own and a lot of bands that I was working during the Kachi one years, I still work to this day, whether it's uh, Andy Kim or 5440 um, and uh, just, you know, so many others from there. So, Eric, when you did make this move in 2016 to striking out on your own and opening your own shop, was it with great confidence or was it with tremendous trepidation that what, why I just left my corporate conglomerate job? Yeah, um, I, I called my wife. Um, from the subway, I called three of the bands and said, I'm going off on my own. Um, there'd been a lot of changes at the company and I'm going to start tomorrow. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, you know, there's no pressure if you want to come on. I'm just letting you know that in case if you email me, this is why, you know, um, and uh, re remarkably, and I'm so thankful for all of them. Um, so many bands just continued to work with me for it. Um, you know, the, the True North record label and Borealis and Stony Plain record labels, which were, you know, some of the the greatest artists from Bruce Coburn to Buffy St. Marie, um, Murray McLaughlin, Mark Jordan, um, they all kind of came 
with me. But it was it, it wasn't like they had jumped ship too. They were still distributed by by whatever label that they were. Um, mm-hmm. But I found it. I'm not going to say it was easy, but it kind of was easy because I I knew I knew what to do. You know, I knew I had the contacts. I knew I built up whatever sort of brand that I that I had, which was strange and rare for somebody that worked in the industry to be known outside of the industry from just being a publicist. But that's just because I said yes to everything. You know, Mm -hmm. when I was taking artists to Canada AM, which at the time was a, 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 you know, the the national show on CTV, um, the producer just said, hey, we've got a we've got an open segment to talk about holiday stuff. Do you want to come on and talk about box sets? And I said, yeah, I didn't even think, wait, this is a conflict of interest. I work in the industry, but I didn't bring all of my stuff. I think I brought one box set and I emailed all the other publicists. I said, hey, look, I'm coming on the show. Do you want me to talk about stuff? Because I was always a music champion and I, mm-hmm. and, and, and I never played favoritism. Even now when I post on social media, rarely, I mean, I'll post about my artists, but it's never about just using it to promote my artists. It's usually just to promote music in itself. So... When I said yes to that, and I loved it, loved being on television, who wouldn't? Um, yep. I, I just kept getting asked to do more and more. Then when somebody passed away, I would come on and talk about it. Then more radio stations called me and more of this. And then when I uh, I, I got offered to do a, um, a spot every week on Sirius XM Canada, because the office was down the street from me. And again, I knew all the hosts. I knew all the producers because I was pitching them on the artist. Um, I said, yeah, sure, why not? And then... I did that. I talked about new releases and what was fun in the music industry and never talked crap about anybody, never went negative on anything because it just wasn't my style. And uh, one day the the director of talk radio um, asked me if I wanted my own show. And I said, no. Like, mm. why? Like, why would anybody want to listen to what I have to say for an hour? And he said, but you do it anyway. The show will have your name on it, but it won't. You know, you can do whatever you want. So all I want to do is continue to put the spotlight on the artist. So it became an interview show rather than listen to me talk for an hour, unlike what I'm doing now. Um, (laughs) But at least I get to, like, talk to people that I love and that I admire. And I wanted to get into the secrets of songwriting or producing or collaboration or what happens when you hit number one and three years later the record label stops bringing limos to your door to pick you up. Like, I want to know that stuff. And it's not gossipy stuff because I'm absolutely tremendously respectful because I know as a publicist, I wouldn't want those gotcha moments. I'll leave that stuff up for everybody else to do. I'm not looking for that. Um, But, and and here we are. And that all brought me to you talking to you, Andrew, you know? So it's really just been, like, it was never, it was planned, but... 99% 99% of it was not playing. I knew I wanted to do something in music. I just didn't know what it was. And because I've always loved the stories and I loved reading and I loved the media and why things were being covered and why they weren't, um, it it just kind of made sense that I went into publicity looking back on it. Well, Eric, you knew what you were doing. So there's the competency factor, but also what you highlight is it was your relationships that really took you to the next level and has, and has made you relevant and important all this time. So it's really the people skills. And I guess, did you have to develop those kind of what we call soft skills or was that your personality? 
Um, I'm tremendously shy when it comes down to it. Um, I'm happy to stay in my in my basement working away um, uh, nonstop. If I, I mean, COVID was obviously the worst thing that's that's happened in in the last you know decades of <laughs> of people's lives. Um, but for me personally, it was the busiest time because the artists themselves realized that they just needed to keep working for the most part, that they were just there. Um, so that kept me really busy. So I didn't really miss the social aspect of it. Um, I like going out, but after an hour, I'm kind of done and I just kind of want to hang out with my wife and when my daughter's back from university and stuff like that and hang out with the dogs and, and just work away and be of service to the artist. So um, a lot of the times it was, it just don't be mean. You know, it, it's like that on social media. Like there's nobody cares Nobody cares what you and I have to say about politics. Nobody cares what you and I have to say about slamming this movie. It's just, it's a place that's just a cesspool if you want it to be. But realistically, if you're just nice to people, if you just respect them and you give them what they need, that's half the battle right there. You know, the media needs certain things they're working on deadline they don't need to screw around they need all the links they need the music they need you know back in the day they needed vinyls or or cds and that was easy like you know it's not brain surgery you mm -hmm. just you know and and you just keep developing the list here and there and you're just generally you know at least try to be nice to people knowing that everybody is facing their own battles and and there's no there's, there's just no reason to add to the cesspool of hate out there and and we're so lucky to be able to do what you do look andrew you're so you're you're good at what you do but you're also really incredibly lucky to do what you do you're lucky to be born in this city you're lucky to be able to talk you're absolutely lucky to be able to be uh, afford to have a microphone and a house and and so am I and so you you just can't take that for granted that that your worst day I mean look my worst day as a bubble is better than most people's best day ever mm -hmm. so like what do I have to complain about well I always like to follow my father's uh, my late father's golden rule which is everyone's golden rule treat others as you want to be treated yeah you can't go wrong with that I do want to ask you, Eric, I'm going to throw out a bunch of names of some of those you have worked with. I'd love to get your recollections and stories. You have worked with so many people that if I went through them all, we'd be here for days and days. So I picked out some that caught my eye, and I want you to feel free to take a pass on anyone you don't want to either <laughs> talk about or not interesting. But Ringo Starr, let's start there. Well, you know, for those people who don't know, he's he was in a band called The Beatles. <laughs> Um, and the Beatles not only changed my life, and the Beatles is still a band that I think of every day. I mean, every time I go down to the office, I, I look at that album cover on the wall. Um, Ringo Starr um, uh, was one of the nicest, kindest people I've ever met. Did a, a, a bunch of press conferences with them because they used to rehearse up at Casino Rama in order to kick off their their uh, their tours, their, the Ringo Starr All-Star Tour. So I worked five albums for him, a couple of live albums. Um, just a real fun guy to be with. Um, knows that when anybody is talking to him, he knows that the first thing that they're thinking of is you're in the Beatles. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you, at a time he was... He was like in the top five of the most popular people on the planet and it served him well. And, and uh, you know, he's got COVID right now, so I hope that he gets well. But um, yeah, just a, a truly nice guy all around. 
Ray Charles. Ray Charles, um, the genius was um, worked with him for just a small bit of time. The last album that he released um, when when he was alive was called Genius Loves Company, and um, got to uh, got to talk to him and his crew when they were putting together this album because this was an album of duets um, with some really big names on there and. Uh, started setting up the the album. He passed away around. My memory is a little bit shot, but it, he passed away around the time of the album, just before the album was released. Um, we ended up selling about three hundred thousand copies in Canada, about three and a half million in America. It hit number one on the charts across North America. So I never got to spend a lot of time with him. I've seen him in concert uh, uh, enough times and met him on numerous occasions since that uh, when I was. At his shows, um, but just you know, I was really sad that he never really got to see the love and the attention during his his eighth comeback. It seems, but um, what a what an amazing talent he was! Changed the game, changed changed music, at least two or three times. This one is uh, not cool to talk about, but maybe it's getting cooler. But I'm gonna put it out there because I'm not shy. Duran Duran, they're my oh, number no. one. I'm going to tell you. Oh my you. gosh, please. Duran Duran is like one of the coolest, hippest bands on the planet. I mean, look, in 1983, <laughs> 84, um, they, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I had posters of them in my locker. Like, um, I, I couldn't even imagine what they were doing to the girls. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like holy smokes. Um, you know, Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger and the fact that they've survived and thrived during their whole career. Um, they are in a, you know, if you just keep going sooner or later, the world comes around to just how, how advanced you are. I did a, uh, I, I, I did a couple of their live DVDs, uh, met them on a couple of occasions. Um, again, just the nicest kindest people, which is going to be a thread throughout this whole thing. Is like, you know, look, if you're a dick and you're mean, it, it's going to go back to it. It, it. People aren't going to want to do things for you. So that when those times are tough and the albums aren't selling a million copies a, a week like they used to, um, they're just going to pass you on. And I've seen it. I've been in the middle of artists and campaigns where I'm working artists that treated the media horribly when they were the biggest thing in the country and the biggest egotistical, you know, people you'll ever want to meet. And then when they did a solo album without the gang behind them, without the big record label behind them, without the hits behind them, nobody wanted to talk to them collectively. Mm -hmm. It's not like that they all ganged up and made the decision, but they were like, no, because they didn't have to. Mm -hmm. With Duran Duran... I think that people always kind of really dug them, even if the audience that that the readership were like, really, Duran Duran? Um, <laughs> did a couple of uh, Twitter chats publicly with John Taylor and Roger Taylor. And, you know, Duran Duran. Like, you, they you, will forever be in my heart. <laughs> you, you and I, Richmond Hill and Duran Duran, we have so much in common. It's amazing. Now I'm going to go totally the opposite side of the coin. I... I think Sammy Hagar is amazing as a musician, as a businessman. Eric, yeah. tell us about this supergroup, Chickenfoot. Yeah, Chickenfoot was uh, Sammy Hagar and Joe Sestriani, among others. And uh, they, they put a couple of albums up on Koch. Um, got to talk to Joe a lot um, throughout it. I worked with him for his solo stuff. Um, and also talked to him recently for the show as well. Um, you know, Sammy was very, very laser focused with what he wanted to do. Um, he is 
a very much a talkative guy. He's very much a um, a buddy buddy guy. He's exactly who you think he is. Um, you would absolutely want to have a couple of tequila shots with him, <laughs> but he is like a lot of people may not get the credit when you're an artist for being really smart about how the industry works, how to diversify, how to make sure that you keep your eye on your money. Because at the end of the day, the art is the art, but it's called the music business for a reason. And both um, Joe and, and Sammy from Chickenfoot absolutely understand that. And uh, it was a, a, an honor and a pleasure to work with that band. Well, he's amazing because he not only obviously had this great career, he did a billion dollar liquor brand out of nothing, and now he's working on his second. So good to hear he's a good guy too. Let's talk about your thoughts on the English beat. Dave Wakeling still tours. He seems like Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah, he is. And he's a, he's, he's a, he's a riot on Twitter too. Um, the English beat um, right after, just before, before Ranking Roger had passed away, uh, one of the labels put out a box set of their three or four or five albums that 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 they got the rights to. So um, so Dave ended up doing a bunch of media in Canada for it, um, and he's a guy that is really down to earth, very quiet, <clears throat> um, loves talking. Um, about his history, which is great because I had a billion questions for him about ska, a genre that I never really got into, but I love the idea of, you know, I love the whole, um, the idea that the, you know, back then, like the races came together, you had multiracial bands, you had this music that came from Jamaica, where did it start? How did it happen? What was their first entry point? All of that stuff. I loved peppering him with questions about, and he answered all of them. So he was a really nice guy to be able to just sit down and talk to answering the questions. I'm sure he got a billion times before and still tours. He's still out there, which is amazing. And still delivers the energy. Yeah. Because what else is are they going to do? And it's not a knock, but like, wouldn't, isn't it, you know, look, and I know it's tough going, I know travel is tough. I know touring is really tough. Um, but, you know, if you, if you have that mess, if you have those, 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 that side of your brain and the wherewithal to be able to say, look, I get to travel the world. I get to play my music. When the hits come out during the live show, the energy is absolutely there and you can feel it. Um, I'm kind of catered to most of my whims these days. People love what I do. I get paid for it handsomely. Why would you want to stop? And most people don't. And I never understood that. I mean, the Rolling Stones kept moving the goalposts further and further. (laughs) But, you know, nobody should be stopping unless you absolutely want to stop or unless health, you know, kind of gets you down and all that stuff. But, like, I would. You know, how come I get to keep going in my 50s, but the artists that I grew up don't? Like, forget it. Keep going. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Eric, I just had on this podcast Matt Dusk. He's on tour right now doing Sinatra. What were your interactions with Matt Dusk? I worked with Matt Dust for a number of years. Um, he's a guy that is so keenly aware of who he is and what kind of an artist he is. He is so blessed with um, not only a good voice, but the mental capacity to go through some of the things artistically and the way that the music industry treated him with, um, you know, becoming you know, the co- the so-called like second coming to Michael Bublé um, appeared on a, on a TV show, um, changed direction, not necessarily in jazz or light jazz or light pop music, but continues to kind of put out 
amazing live shows and amazing music doing, you know, shows on Frank Sinatra doing, um, you know, what he does and still on tour. Um, and one of the funniest guys I've ever been around. Matt Dusk is a guy that I wish I could have spent more time on, but I was so shy that I didn't want to ruin the party. I didn't want to overstay my welcome. I didn't want to be the publicist in the room. So there were a lot of times when, you know, there for a little bit backstage, hung out with him in the band and just had a grand old time. But I didn't know, I didn't know my place. I mean, that's just the, 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 the lack of self-confidence or, or the immense, you know, everything in me. So, so I left, but he was the guy that I, I adore my desk. Yeah. He's just Eric, so cool. I, it really would have come down to he's so cool and I am so uncool. I shouldn't be where he is. That's that's really what it comes down to. And I'm not I'm not making fun of it. I think I'm absolutely being serious with that. He was great to talk to and he definitely is a cool guy. I can't get Eric uh, in the car with my 15 year old. We can't go three blocks without hearing uh, DJ Khaled yell out <laughs> that this is another DJ Khaled song. Is he a brilliant promoter or a brilliant musician? Or how do you feel about DJ Khaled? He's a great DJ. I mean, he certainly has an ear for his music history. He certainly knows where he's come from. He certainly knows the community that he's a part of. He certainly loves to put the spotlight on it. He knows that rap music and R&B music is about boasting. It's about proclaiming. Uh, it's about naming yourself in a, in as many songs and times as possible when you're up there on the stage. And people love him for that. So he kept going. So he is a brilliant promoter because he gives people what he wants. But then he 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 just went up 10 levels when social media was around um and and was just a beast on instagram um and uh, like everybody else when you know that something works on social media you keep doing it um and that kind of bleeds into the music you know but social media social media and music and art and film and television are are a complete different beast because if 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 the followers equated the sales, like Kim Kardashian would be selling 380 yeah. million things every single time she posts. You know what I mean? I didn't realize, Eric, your history with Nickelback, but I want to, they're so divisive in terms of people's reaction. And Alan Cross was on this podcast and he said he will fight you if you don't acknowledge Nickelback being a important band. How should Nickelback be viewed and what were your interactions with them and their history? I've known Nickelback um, since since I started working with them all the way back around, I, I'm going to say 1999 or so, um, you know, a, around that time, they are they it, it pains me to see what what certain people think of them. Um, but it doesn't change my opinion that they are absolutely one of the most important and one of the greatest bands that this country and rock music has ever produced. Their sales prove it. Um, their live show is astonishing. Um, they write songs that are so earworm-like. Um, and look, for everybody that will say, you know, their formula... Um, like, you know, oh my gosh, ACDC isn't, you know, most yep. bands are. That's why they're so successful time after time after time, you know, unless you're Radiohead, which is like cool in itself. But like, you know, you give people what they want. You, you know, There's a lot of people who just want rock music for rock music's sake. They want something to burn, 
you know, their car, their truck's rubber on a Friday night after they just got paid. They're no different from Boston. They're no different from Journey. They're no different from Triumph. They're no different from all of these amazing rock bands that North America has ever produced, like Aerosmith. Um, and, and Chad and the guys are, again, like the nicest, kindest people. They will do anything for charities they will um show up to where they need and want to show up um you know my daughter first met them at the junos when she was five or six and took a lovely photo of them a year later she's back at the junos with me and they knew her name they recognized her they kind of picked her up and like threw her around a little bit um in a loving way and and just the way that they treat people is is so is so warm and happy to watch that it 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 really I mean this is where I talk about when it goes back on social media um you know there are so there there's so many people who thrives on on creating hate and and just bad stuff on on social media that it's sad that it doesn't even have to be this way we had the greatest tool in, in human history to be able to communicate since, you know, the telephone with computers and internet and, and we use it just to crap on people. I, I've got no time for it. It just doesn't even, it, there's no, there's nothing good that could ever come out of it. Well, let's go to one group that there can be no debate about. Everyone feels good about these guys. You worked with the Wiggles. The Wiggles, um, the, the Wiggles are the, the dirtiest, um, uh, roughest, toughest, um, beat down. Um, they killed people. They Uh-oh. have. Um, they they know where the bodies are buried. They're manipulators. No, the Wiggles are as great as you hope and you think they are. They. Uh, I I spent a lot of tours, um, working with them. Um, when the Wiggles first started and they came to Toronto. Um, all those years ago, I think their sign, the Wiggles that was in the back of the venue, was made of tin foil or aluminum foil. And then four or five years later, they sold out four shows at the Rogers Center in Toronto. Television had a huge part in that. I mean, they come from the punk world. They got their start forming a band called the cockroaches in Australia. So their, their mentality was always songwriting. It was always how to treat an audience. Um, And they weren't like spitting on the audience or anything like that, but they were smart people. They went to university. They went to graduate school. They wrote these amazing, you know, PhD dissertations on stuff. It, 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 smart, smart people. Um, and they treated not only the kids really well, they treated the mothers who brought the kids to their shows. They did meet and greet until the very last person came along. We did trips to the hospital with them and didn't let anybody know, especially people in the media, because they just wanted to, to brighten somebody's day. Um, they are exactly, again, what you hope that a band would be. And the Wiggles have a very very cool place in my heart next to Duran Duran. Almost for the same reasons. And certainly if you talk to some of the mothers at the Wiggles shows, they are like their version of Duran Duran. Yeah. You know, well, everybody's I, got a favorite Wiggle. Everybody's got a favorite member of Duran Duran. There's not a lot of difference, man. No. And and, and to your point, Eric, they're a great brand because they have had yeah. members come in and out, but they still keep the brand. 
And I was at one of those shows at Skydome. And uh, in those days, Wiggles was 24-7 in this house. Yeah, it's funny. I talked to Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons a couple of months ago. Um, and, and, you know, we were talking about how long Kiss can go for. And they said, you know, this is our last tour. You know, like, they're, they're not going <laughs> to reveal anything until they want to reveal something. And I said to them, like, look, man, like, I worked with the Wiggles. Like, there's no reason why you just can't keep bringing members in and out or having AI or having holograms or, you know, like the Harlem Globetrotters have three different basketball teams at any given time that play around the world. Like, you are absolutely a brand. Um, and, uh, you know, they laughed as if they were hearing this for the first time. But I know for a fact that you know that they were thinking about this at least a hundred <laughs> times before, you know? Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons... Uh, I actually don't have a problem with it. Are they just the most greedy guys in history? Or like, they don't have to play another show and can live off their wealth and find lots of fun things to do. And they keep going and they keep, they merchandise caskets famously. What's your whole thoughts on Kiss? <laughs> I love them. They're great. Nobody's forcing you to buy anything. You know, um, look, I, all right. I, I, there are a couple of bands that I wish they did more merch. Look, mm. I love Genesis. I love In Excess. I love Talk Talk. I love Cheers for Fears. I love Wet Leg. I love Sam Bender. I, the, I wish they were doing 80 times more merchandise than, than that. I'd buy it all. Um, Kiss was always about the experience. It was about experiencing them live. It was about reading about them, the comic book. They were selling a fantasy world that you could leave your miserable, sullen life and go and be in Kiss's world. And what could be better than than that? They look like that they were having the best time in the world. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with that. They could they could be around for a hundred years for for uh, for all the gratitude that I, I have for them. And me too. I think and I think they will be actually. Maestro Fresh West, huge, 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 disappeared. Huge. Apparently, he's back. Yeah, he's got a. He keeps. Re, he he's keeping on releasing music. He's got a children's book that is um, uh, garnered a lot of attention. Look back in, you know, back when when Let Your Backbone Slide came out in the nineteen eighty three eighty four. Every bar mitzvah and every bat mitzvah that I went to for about five years, we're playing that song. And there's nothing like watching a bunch of white Jewish kids in oversized suits um, try to be cool and hip and dance to that music. It just, I, I was, uh, uh, you know, just an absolute geek about it. Um, change the game. I mean, change rap music, change hip hop music, change R&B music, change the way that videos were being played on much music, um, change the way that the doors were open for artists from Canada, no matter what genre you were in um, back in the day. Um, you know, got the first rap award from the Junos, um, started you know, through no fault of him, started the little rumblings between, you know, the, the hip-hop and the rap artists against the Junos, just like we saw with the rap artists and hip-hop artists at the at the Grammy Awards, being treated with, with the respect that they deserve, with the kindness that they deserve, with the airtime that they deserve. And Maestro Fresh West busted down those doors and uh, um, an absolute legend. Let's talk about Snoop, D-O-double-G. <laughs> um, Snoop was the only... So I did the BR for Death Row Records for a number of years. So ended up working Doggy Style and The Chronic from Dre, Machiavelli, Tupac, uh, long after 
they had been released, but they kept releasing them on CD and special CD and extended things. So whenever we had something really big to go on, um, they would do interviews. So Snoop would do interviews and, and a couple of others from the team would do interviews, um, end up working for a couple of music festivals, um, doing freelance where Snoop was the headliner, had a lot of few moments with him, never, never walked out of his trailer with a clear head, never had more than, I think, one joint with him because you just can't. You can't, you, you can't, it's, it's, I mean, the best high that you've ever had times up by like 40, like he's got the best stuff. Um, he has his own joint roller that <laughs> comes with him that he pays now something like 50 or $60,000 a year, which might be next to your and my job, the best job in the world. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, the fact that Snoop Dogg has gone from a man that was accused of murder to hanging out with Martha Stewart and change his brand to before the kids, the football team that he coached, the television show, game show host that he is, to to being the wholesome character that he is, while never losing an ounce of credibility. Um, there's a there's a good marketing book to be written about that. I'm with you. He's a great businessman. Let's talk about Public Enemy. What were your interactions with them? Oh, I adore Public Enemy. Um, uh, I mean, look, I bought their records as a kid and, and revolutionized the way that I thought about rap music and changed the way that I thought about America, changed the way I thought about race and culture, um, changed the way I thought about censorship and radio. Um, got to work um, a number of their albums. They uh, Chuck D started his own record label that we were distributing in Canada, did a, a number of interviews with him for the radio show, talked to him on Twitter um, a, a handful of times. Um, one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my entire life, just understood where it was at, where it came from and where it was going. And, and uh, um, still um, one of the keenest minds I've ever met. You can just, ask him how he is and like an hour later he will give you the history lesson about something that you never knew about based on that one question um and it's all brilliant i mean hmm. he has i mean he's got a number of books in him as well and i hope that he gets around to writing them Sinead o'connor kind of disappeared and then suddenly recently for an anniversary of a significant event has been back in the news. Do you just want to tell us what that event was and did you work with Sinead O'Connor? Yeah, I worked with Sinead O'Connor for a number of albums, including Theology. Um, look, she, uh, she um, like Chuck D, I mean, they're both kind of two, two peas from the same pod, um, uh, did what they wanted to do, stuck to their road, stuck to their vision, didn't care a whit about what anybody really thought. I mean, Sinead O'Connor is somebody that shaved her head because the record label told her that she should wear more, you know, more skirts and dresses and, and high heels to make themselves, to, to make herself more palatable to, to men. Um, uh, shaved her head, did what she wanted to do, had the Public Enemy logo um, um, painted on the side of her head when Public Enemy boycotted the, the, the Grammys. Um, then later on was nominated for, uh, for for four Grammy Awards for I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got. Uh, refused to show up because she didn't believe that art should be um, recognized in terms of, of pitting artists against one another. Tore up a picture of the Pope because she thought that the Catholic Church um, abused children. But, you know, and she was right. Um, 
got harassed, got threatened, got death threats, um, got canceled before canceled was it. Um, mm-hmm. Kept going, created a number of albums that are just so superb that I ended up working here in Canada. Took her around town, saw her shows, adored her, loved her, protected her to no end. Um, talked to her earlier this year. She's gone through a lot of um, crisis mode, um, threatened to to commit suicide. She lost her son to to suicide. There's a new documentary on her right now that is on Showtime that is brilliant that um, has a lot of her speaking about her early childhood um, I will protect the, 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 the name I mean look she can do no wrong by me ever ever hmm. ever ever Eric you've been so patient I got two last ones yeah. for you I'll little Stevie Stephen Van Zandt little Stephen um, little Stephen is a guy that I can sit and listen to talk about music forever um got your work uh he started a record label um and did the pr for the record label here in canada so every time that he came up every time that the bruce springsteen and the easy band came up got to do uh, a lot of media with him um uh just uh, just a sweetheart of a guy um he's a little bit taller than me so i think that that's where the whole connection is um um, looked a little bit like me back in the day with the bandanas, um, and I think I caught the style or two from him. Um, just an absolute powerhouse producer, guitarist, singer, songwriter, actor, and uh, uh, lovely, 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 lovely. I can't believe that you would have been old enough, but the one name that caught my eye was Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. So um, long after he left the um, long after he left the Rolling Stones, he released a number of, of uh, Bill Wyman um, all-star blues band albums, and he wrote a book based on his not only his experiences in the Rolling Stones, because he was a curator. He kept everything in the Rolling Stones. He kept the ticket stubs. He kept a diary of how much they got paid, what songs they played, how was the venue, the name of the booking agent, um, after-party stuff. He kept all of that, and he put it together in a Rolling Stone book. And then he did a whole history of the blues in a hardcover book, which is still brilliant, still one of the the best books I've ever read on blues music. Um, so I did the PR for both the book and the the records whenever um, he came up to Canada, which was about I think four or five times or so. Um, you know, I think he mildly hit on my wife, um, and I, I I I was okay with that. You know, maybe he was just being really nice. Maybe it would be, but my wife is funny. Well. <laughs> My my, I, I didn't even realize it. I just thought he was nice, and my my wife was like, you know, Bill Wyman, I think is hitting on me, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool, you know, like, would you go for me? And she was like, no, but just want to let you know. And so, uh, but I think Bill Wyman is is just one of those guys where you you fully expect him to hit on because he's a member of the Rolling Stones, and it would yeah. be an honor to be hit, you know, you know, hit up by him. <laughs> that's not off brand at all. <laughs> Now, Eric, you are huge on social media. You've got over 1 million followers across all your various platforms. But how long will it be before, when we search the internet, we will find you demoted to a simple footnote listed simply as the father of Hannah Alper? Oh, it already happened. Nobody nobody cares. I can leave Twitter tomorrow and nobody would care. Um, and Tell I us don't about mean- your daughter, if you will. 
Yeah, Hannah Alper. She is um, she's in Western University now. She is on a full year, full four year scholarship to the MIT program. She's an author. She started her blog when she was nine years old, um, talking about the environment and animals and what we could all do to make the world and ourselves better people. Uh, I'm immensely proud of her. She is one of the nicest, wholesome, kindest. Um, bestest people um, I've ever met. And I'm not saying that because she's my daughter. She did the We Day tour something like 45, 46 times. She appeared on the stage motivating um, kids and adults and teenagers to make the world a better place. And, and uh, uh, everything <laughs> everything I do, I do so that she, she has a better life. Well, spoken like a proud papa. That's great. And it's, it's great to see her off at Western. She gets to spread her wings a bit. I'd want to get your comment, Eric, on the live music scene. Maybe you can give us an update. Post-pandemic, recently had Tragically Hit Manager Jake Gold on the podcast. He reported the younger back out there in full force, sold-out shows, scarce tickets. But for acts appealing to a more mature audience, the crowds are not yet back at capacity. He cited, for example, over two nights, the Eagles played to a total audience size that normally they would see in a single night. What are you seeing and hearing out there with regards to live music in Toronto? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. And of course, having just under 50 venues in the city of Toronto closed permanently um, don't help because all music starts off local. Um, these clubs are, are extremely important to the viability and the economy of the music industry. All bands and all artists have to start somewhere. Not everybody has to start up on social media and kind of developing their followers that way. But it looked like that, that is the way that this current generation of music lovers of 8 to 18 year olds want their music. They're not going to the clubs as much as, as our generation did. They're smoking less. They're drinking less. They're going out less. They've got more of an opportunity to hang out at home and play video games games or or chat online and that's okay the you know I'm not knocking against what anybody else should be spending their time with but um, when you start to have something like COVID already kind of decimating a live music industry we were the first ones to get shut down we were the last ones to be open Um, I'm seeing now some of the artists having zero walk-up crowd when it when they're when they're um, for their shows, people are making decisions much quicker on whether or not if they're going to spend one hundred dollars, two, three, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, not just on tickets, but going out dinner, the babysitter, whatever, parking, all the rest of the stuff. And COVID hurt a lot of people in the pocketbooks. A lot of people lost their jobs. Um, forget about the people that just lost their lives. Not forget about them, but that was a big chunk of of any. Whenever you lose that many people, you are going to lose especially in the older crowd, people that used to do this and used to do that. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the audiences aren't there yet. People are still scared to go out. Not everybody, but, you know, I was for the longest time. It made it certainly easier for me to work. But I, you know, I think I've seen one or two shows since then. When I was working at uh, Oshiega this summer, um, you know, caught COVID probably at the airport. Um, most places that there's more than 100 people indoors are, are a super spreader event. I think everybody's eventually going to get it, um, you know, and I'm triple vac. So I had a really mild case of it. But realistically, you know, the music industry isn't the way that it was before COVID. And I'm not so sure it's coming back in the same way. I'm not so sure it's ever going to come back in the same way. I think for Hmm. people like The Weeknd or Justin Bieber or Shawn Mendes, um, you know, I think that those, that generation is is a little bit fearless and they should be because they're younger. Um, But for the older crowd, yeah, there's a lot more things 
that are going on in their minds rather than just seeing that band that they saw three or four times before. They're being much more cautious and much more smarter with how they're spending their money. Well, we're certainly going to see a new normal. It's not going to be the way it was. Eric, as we wrap up, I want to know what you're working on for the remainder of the year and, and what's what's next? What's in the hopper for Eric Alper? A lot of tours, speaking of. 5440 is on tour. Blackie and the Rodeo King is on tour. Uh, Crystal Shwanda just released an awesome album uh, called Midnight Blues. She is on tour. Sue Foley continues to be on tour. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of... I love working tour dates because it gives me a reason and a chance to go out to some of the cities doing PR for places that I normally don't get to talk to, like Winnipeg and Vancouver and Saskatoon. So that stuff is great. People are still recording albums. i got a lot of artists that are just making singles. People like Alexis Lin um, in the indigenous pop world is blowing up. Um, so, yeah, uh, just keeping busy. And, you know, it's one of those scenarios where I think even if I was working one artist, I'd be just as busy as if I'm working a couple of dozen or however many I'm working right now. Well, it's great to hear you're so busy and that you're loving it, of course. Where can we best follow you and all your various projects? They can best follow me at Sobeys, where I go five times a week. Um, oh, no, oh, not in real life. They can follow me at that Eric Alper on Twitter and uh, that Eric Alper.com for the website and all the socials are there, too. Excellent. Well, I will, I will see you. We'll probably run into each other at Sobeys. Yeah, now, now that I know the, what, what, what you look like, for sure. <laughs> we'll grab breakfast soon. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me, man. I love talking to you. Eric, I want to thank you so much. I wish you continued success. Thank you. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Richmond Hill Legends Podcast. On behalf of Eric Alper, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.